Amen. Well, good morning. Um, before I get into the message today, we have a quick video that I want to show you that's going to talk about, uh, you guys know we have Easter coming up, and this is a really important week uh, that's going to be coming up starting next Sunday, so I'm going to share this video with you guys. Hey church, it's Pastor Brian, and I want to tell you about the week that changed the world. That's what we're coming up on starting next Sunday, and it's also the title of a little mini-series that we'll be starting for Easter. We're talking, of course, about Holy Week or Passion Week, and that, of course, represents the final week that bridged Jesus's earthly ministry and Jesus's crowning achievement, of course, when he went to the cross and then rose from the dead three days later. So for Christians, Holy Week starts on Palm Sunday, which we'll celebrate next week, and we'll talk about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And then five days later, we'll have our traditional Good Friday service where we'll take a look at Jesus and the road to Golgotha. And of course, we cap it all off with Easter Sunday. And this year, we're gonna talk about the walk to Emmaus. It's a really cool story in the Gospel of Luke that is told after the resurrection of Jesus. And it's gonna give us some really powerful insights into this week that we're coming up on, the week that changed the world. Now, I wanna remind you that this is probably the easiest time of year to invite someone to join us for church. So invite someone, a friend or a coworker or a family member to join us for Palm Sunday or Good Friday or our Easter services or all of the above. And it just might be the week that changes their worlds. Be sure to join us and invite some friends. Yeah, so that's going to be um, starting next week is Palm Sunday. And, and this is just going to be, like Brian said, a really good time to be invitational to those who might not typically come to church, might not typically hear the gospel. Um, this will be a gospel-centered week. So I would encourage you guys uh, to be invitational to that starting next week. So we are in the fourth week of this series on the, the parable of the prodigal son, okay? Um, and each week, what we've been doing, the last three weeks is we talked about a different character from the story, okay? And now, um, I'm sure a lot of you, as we've gone through this, if you've been here for the whole series, you guys have probably um, had this story hit close to home, I would imagine. Uh, I, you can probably think of somebody that you know, maybe somebody really close to you, um, who has wandered off like the prodigal son has, who, who has really gone on to this, this path of just complete self-destruction. Or maybe you are the one who was lost, or maybe you still feel lost. Maybe you relate to the prodigal son. Um, for me, I know it's both. I have known plenty of people uh, close to me who, who have wandered off um, on a destructive path and a destructive lifestyle, um, but I am that person as well. Uh, I was far from God, wanting nothing to do with him, caught up in a life of addiction, uh, complete selfishness, um, only concerned with satisfying the desires of my flesh, and so I really, really relate to the prodigal son. But I praise God for rescuing me from that life, um, and uh, I'm here today. So the first week, we talked about the prodigal son. And we talked about um, how he, he demanded his inheritance, his, his, his share of the estate from his father, um, so that he could 
go off into a, a far land and live the way that he wanted to live, kind of like a spoiled child, you might say. That's what I think about when I, when I read that story, and, um, and I could say that because that was me, like I said. Um, so he goes off and he blows all of his money, right, um, what it says in wild living. We can imagine what that might be. Uh, think about it in today's world, what wild living might, might entail. The second week, we talked about the prodigal father, okay? And now we call him, we call that the, he's the prodigal father because the word prodigal, it means, um, it means spending money or resources freely and recklessly or wastefully extravagant. Now, I don't think that God is wasteful. I don't think he's necessarily wasteful, but he, he is definitely extravagant in what he gives us, what he gives you know, those who love him and, and those that he loves. So what happens is, you know, the prodigal son goes off. Like I said, he blows all of his money, and a famine comes along, and he is, he's, he's so hungry, he's, he's got no money, and he finds himself wishing that, that he could just eat what the pigs are eating. He is at this low state where he is desiring to eat what they're feeding the pigs. Okay? So... Um, he realizes in this moment, he realizes that, he goes, my father's servants back home are living a lot better than I am right now. So what happens is he goes home to plead with his father to let him be one of his servants because he knows he's blown it as a son, right? He's, he's, he's already just kind of written that off. So he thinks, I'll go home, live as a servant towards my father, and, and you know, maybe then I can, I can live that way. But the father actually refuses. He refuses this because the father instead, he restores him as his son. He welcomes him back with open arms. And then they even, they celebrate. So last week, we talked about the third character in the story. Okay? The third character was the brother. Um, he, he is what we were calling the rule keeper. He was the one who stayed, and he, and he worked hard. He was, he was doing all these things to try to, to earn, you know, uh, the things that he thought he deserved, okay? Really, he had this, this like, transactional idea of a relationship with his dad. He thought that he was going to have to, you know, earn his estate, the inheritance, um, even his father's love. I think he kind of felt like that was something to be earned and worked for. So he, this, is, this is his brother's idea of a relationship with the father. So when the prodigal son returns, they're celebrating. The brother stays outside, and he refuses to even join in on the celebration. He, he's actually angry about it. And that's because he feels like his father's possessions, his inheritance, and even his love is something to be earned or worked for. So if you've been here throughout the whole series, we've actually been talking about this, who this story is really about. It talks a lot about the prodigal son who goes off and, and squanders everything and comes home, but the story is really speaking about the brother, okay? Because who is Jesus talking to? If we go back and we look, he's talking to the Pharisees and the, and the religious teachers, Okay? And what Jesus does is he's sharing the story about God's heart towards people. Because these religious people, they, 
They just couldn't understand why Jesus would be hanging out with all of these known sinners, right? He's hanging out with these people who they've got a reputation. A lot of them have reputations that aren't good. And Jesus is hanging out with them. He's eating with them. He's, he's, he's teaching them, and they, they don't get it. They're like, you're supposed to be above that. You're, you're a rabbi. You shouldn't be hanging out with these people. See, and the reason for that is because despite all of their years and years of study, their, their you know, just this radical dedication to living by the religious laws that they had, these people that he was talking to, they completely missed God's heart towards people. And that's what this parable is about. This is what Jesus was trying to teach. He was trying to teach what God's heart is towards people, especially the lost. Now, this parable talks to us today, too. It talks to us as the church. See, it's for the church. It isn't really for the lost. Like it, like it does. It, it, it talks about those lost people, right? And it, and it does. It can speak to those who are lost. It's, it's powerful. But really, it's, it's speaking to those of us who would call ourselves Christians who are trying to live God-honoring lives. And how we treat the lost, the prodigals, the rebellious, really that shows exactly... Um, what type of relationship we have with God. It reveals the true motives behind why are, why are we doing what we do? Why are we meeting every Sunday? Why are we going and holding these events out in the community? You know, why are we doing this? Because what was it that really rescued the prodigal son when you think about it, when you really look at this story? See, when he hit rock he hit rock bottom and he realized um, that his father's servants were living better than he, he was. Was he motivated by this desire to come home and repair his relationship with his father? Or was he just motivated by his hunger? That's really what it was, right? He was, he was hungry. He wanted to come home and be fed. And that's what his motivation was. But it wasn't hunger or losing all of his wealth that brought the prodigal son back into restoring his relationship with his father. In fact, it had nothing to do with anything that the son did. It was nothing of his doing that restored him. It was the father's extravagant love for the son that rescued and restored him. And this is how God works. This is exactly how God works. He'll use anything that he can to draw us back to him because he pursues us. He reaches out for us. He wants nothing more than to bring us back in right relationship with him. He chases after us like the father did in this story. Now let me, let me ask you, why is this so important? Why is this story so important? Why did Jesus want to teach the religious people to understand how to love prodigals or those that are lost. Well, really, it's because that's our purpose. That's our purpose here. That's our purpose as God's people is to draw people to him, to point people to the Father. See, when this life is over, we don't take anything else with us but those other saved souls. 
And that's the important thing here in this world. And I personally, I can testify for myself that it was love that saved me. It was first the love of fellow believers, um, and most especially the love of my wife, um, that pointed me to the love of Christ. So that's why this is important. That's why it's important for us to learn how to love a prodigal, okay? Now, this isn't this worldly, conditional kind of love that we're used to in the world. This is real biblical love, unconditional love like the kind that God demonstrates to us, the kind that he calls us to do to others. So I'm going to go over five different tips today on how to love a prodigal. So tip number one is be honest about your own brokenness. This is, a, this is a tough thing, you know. Am I really aware of my own sin, my own brokenness? I think this is a common issue a lot of times um, with us as believers is, you know, we tend to forget about our own sin. We instead seem to focus on the sin that's around us. We really get caught up in pointing out sin in the world and in, in, in people we come in contact with. We're really good at that. Really good at seeing outside of ourselves. Not real good at holding up that mirror. But the problem is, if I'm unaware of my own sin, my own brokenness, if I can't see it in myself, how am I going to help somebody else to see it in themselves? See, it says in Luke chapter 6, verses 41 and 42, this is Jesus talking here. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye? When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. See, when I first came to faith, when I was first rescued from that, that messed up life I was living, uh, I never hesitated to share my brokenness. I was, you probably heard the term, on fire for the Lord. Man, I was. I was on fire. And I shared with everybody exactly what God had rescued me from, uh, what he had done in my life. Uh, but as time went on, I, I kind of stopped wanting to do that. You know, I kind of wanted to, to stop talking about my addiction and my past and, and all these things that had happened. I just wanted to move on from it. But that didn't help the ministry that God had called me into. See, we were actually leading a recovery group. I had started going to a recovery group uh, myself, and, and as, I, as I gained uh, recovery and, and um, some victory in my addiction, we, had, we ended up launching our own recovery group. Uh, we actually meet up at the Layton campus on Monday nights. Um, and so I was, I was leading that. I was mentoring people who had come um, from the same places that I'd come from and had struggled in the same, same ways. So in order for me to help others, I had to continue sharing my own brokenness. And there's, there's really two reasons for this. The first reason is that when we open up and we share our own struggles, our own brokenness, our own sin, it, it makes us vulnerable to other people. And when we're vulnerable, other people are willing to open up and share as well. They're willing to become vulnerable with us. It builds this trust. 
And the other reason that I found it important to share my story is that it is a, it is a huge part of my testimony. I can't forget, forget where God rescued me from. It's, it's one of the most humbling things to me. And humility is, is huge in the Christian life. See, it's important not just in our approach to other people. It's important in our approach to God. See, Jesus actually ter- tells this other parable in Luke 18. He tells this parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. I'm not sure if you guys have heard this before, but uh, it, it, it really touches on the approach that we should take to God. It says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this is Jesus talking, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, if you don't know, During this time period, tax collectors uh, were really kind of seen as the lowest of the low. You couldn't get much lower than a tax collector. So one thing is they worked for the Roman government, so they were seen as traitors. They were really, people looked at them as traitors. And the other thing uh, was that they would overcharge on the taxes they collect so that they could skim money off the top. That's how they made their money. So not only were they seen as traitors, they were seen as thieves, So which of these men really approached God in prayer, like real prayer? Really, it was only the tax collector. The Pharisee, he didn't go to the temple to pray. He went to the temple to really announce his own goodness, to proclaim how amazing he was. Like, what need does he really have for God, right? Just like, hey, look at me. I'm amazing. At least I'm not like that guy over there. Now, the difficult question when we read this story, you should ask yourself, and I ask myself, which of these people am I? See, I found myself being both at different times in my life. At my lowest moments, I found myself on my knees praying almost that same prayer as the tax collector, just knowing how sinful and lost I was. But I've also found myself stuck in the exact same mindset as the Pharisee. You know, I've found myself comparing comparing myself to other people. You know, looking at somebody else and saying, you know, yeah, I've done a lot of crap. I've done some horrible things in my life, but man, at least I've never done what that guy's done. So who did Jesus say was justified here? Who was justified? The tax collector. The person who approaches God with nothing but the knowledge of how much they need God, how much they need that grace that he offers, that they bring nothing to the table. That 
is the one who's justified, that that is the humble attitude that God wants us to be in because that's where he can do the good work in us. That's where he can, he can come into our hearts and, and do something with us. That's the humble attitude he wants. And humility is also an important trait um, as we get into tip two. Tip number two is be the one to absorb the offense. Here's what Paul says in the book of Romans. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. See, as Christ's church, we're, we're called the body of Christ. Okay? And what it says in 1 Corinthians is this describes the body of Christ. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And it goes on to say in verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now what do we do when a part of, of our body is, is weak or injured, our own physical body? Do we just cut it off? Do we just get rid of it? No, we do what we can to help it heal, right? We, we, and we, we compensate for that injury while it heals. Who here is seriously injured like a limb, like an arm or a leg or something before? Maybe broken something or tore something? Uh, when I was 21, I tore my ACL and my meniscus in my right knee playing soccer. And so I had to have surgery to repair it. And while it was healing, I had to have it in this straight leg brace, for, for a few months, and I had to walk around on, on crutches and everything. And, and so what actually happened during this time is my left leg, because it was compensating for my right leg, it actually grew stronger. And, it, it, and to this day, my, my muscles in my left leg are still bigger than my right leg. It's nice and weird looking. But um, that's, how we're, that's how we're supposed to operate in the body of Christ, okay? When one of us is weak... Um, and broken, those, those of us who are strong are called to carry them. We absorb the difficulties. We absorb the offense, whatever it is, because we're part of something that's bigger than ourselves. Now, obviously, there's going to be boundaries to this, okay? So as we get into tip three, that's going to, that's going to talk about that a little bit. Um, in your extravagance, don't enable sin. Do not enable sin. So where do we find that? that really fine line between being patient and loving with a prodigal and enabling them. Well, we see here in Galatians, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. So you who are spiritual, who, who is that? Who are the spiritual well, when you have a question about some text in the Bible, the best way to answer that is the Bible itself. Okay? So the spiritual, those who walk by the Spirit, if we go back a few verses, we can see exactly who these people are, okay? The people who walk by the Spirit demonstrate this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So those who have given their lives to Christ, those of us who would call ourselves Christians, we should now be living by the Spirit rather than the flesh. Now, is anyone doing that perfectly? Does anybody have that, that down? No. No, we don't, right? We all still struggle with the desires of the flesh as long as we live here in this world. But we're not ruled by the flesh. We aren't ruled by it. That doesn't, that doesn't lead everything that we do in our lives any longer. We have a new nature in us now, okay? Um, we have this, this new life that we're living And as we do, as we walk this new path in this new life, we become more mature and we gain experience in walking by the Spirit. And if we've done these first two tips, these first two steps correctly in loving a prodigal, being honest about our own brokenness, and then being willing to absorb uh, any offenses, you know, really loving a prodigal, now we've established this relationship with, the, with, with this lost person, with this prodigal, okay? We've established a relationship, and now we have that, that ground to be able to call out sinful behavior. And because of our vulnerability, being open about our own sin, and, and, and because of the love that we've shared to this lost person, our correction is probably a lot more likely to be received, But honestly, no matter how well we practice these first three tips, another person's actions and their decisions are outside of our control. And that's why we have tip number four. Stop trying to control every outcome. And this this is a struggle for anybody who's trying to help a prodigal. But in Matthew 6.34, it says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There's enough trouble today to worry about than worrying about tomorrow, it says. And this we apply as well um, to helping a prodigal, okay? When, when Sharice and I first launched uh, the recovery group up at the Leighton campus, we wanted to help everyone who came, you know, give their lives to Christ. Like, we were really passionate about that. But something that I knew after the life of addiction that I had lived is that you can't control other people. Um, you can't control the choices that they're going to make. You can't control their decisions. And this tip, really, it goes hand in hand with tip number three, uh, uh, that enabling behavior. Okay? Sharice will be okay with me telling you this. Uh, I know she will. But she wanted us to basically get the numbers of every single person who came. That first week they show up, we would get their number, and she wanted us to, like, call them every week, make sure we're hounding them to get them to the, to the group each week. Um, and it was, you know, it, it's great. There's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong with that desire to help people. Um, but there's an important part that's missed in this approach, and that is that a person needs to take responsibility for themselves, especially especially, you know, somebody with an addiction. So not only can that become enabling to some people, helping them avoid being responsible for their own recovery, but it gets insane when you're trying to control all those people who are just going to continually let you down. 
you know, they're going to make their own decisions, and, and you have to let them. The other funny part about that is, I don't know if any of you are aware, uh, but at a lot of recovery groups, they do this. We, we say uh, this prayer at the end of every meeting. It's called the serenity prayer, okay? And trying to control what we can't control basically contradicts this prayer altogether. So even after saying it every, every single week, it just wasn't quite sticking in, in our minds sometimes. Um, this thing, this prayer, it's, just, it's really learning to, to let go of the things that we can't control and let God handle them, trusting him with that. And here is the serenity prayer. It says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, this prayer... Um, really, it, it, it relates as well to the last tip that I want to talk about today, okay? Tip number five is pray that God would do whatever it takes. So it's ultimately going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. It really is. That's going to turn a prodigal back to God. You know, we can share truth and love all day, but it's the Spirit that convicts the heart. When we trust in Jesus for our salvation, the, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our heart, right? And this, this really is a, a priceless, priceless gift. And Jesus told his disciples how important this was going to be for the Spirit to come. Um, in, in John chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. See, the Spirit convicts. The Spirit tells us where we're wrong and, 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 and leads us in a, in a new way it, because it also, the Spirit empowers us as well. The Holy Spirit, he's our, he's our ever-present helper when we've given our life to Jesus. He allows us to walk in this new path that we're called into, this, this path of righteousness. But we can't walk this path on our own. It's impossible. We can't walk it without the Holy Spirit. Because it's only our dependence on the Spirit that's going to allow us to not be ruled by our flesh. We need that new nature that's going to lead us. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit... And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's how we don't get caught up in gratifying our flesh. It's walking by the Spirit. It's going to come down to the work of the Spirit in another person, in a prodigal that we're trying to help. And then the Spirit is going to grow them as well. The Spirit is going to work on that person, grow them, and we're there to love and support um, but it's ultimately going to be up to God. And we need to have faith in that because it says in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We trust in that. What God begins, he's going to finish. This really, this just goes to show, like I said earlier, what a priceless gift the Holy Spirit is. I hope that those of you who call yourself Christians have, have really taken something from this series as we've gone through it. 
It's that the most important thing we can do in this life is to help somebody else pursue God. That, that's really our mission. That is our mission here. And the prodigals need God as much as anyone. And I just want to say that if you're here today, maybe you would consider yourself the prodigal in this story. My prayer is that this parable would help you see that it doesn't matter how much you've done, how far you feel you've drifted from God, He always wants you back. Maybe, maybe it's coming to Him for the first time. He wants you. He pursues you. And if that's something that you need some help with, making that decision, talking more about it, please come find me, come find a leader afterwards because we would really like to help you in that area. We'd like to, to talk with you more about that because God wants you and he wants to restore you to your true self, who he created you to be.